I'm Sanjeet Sethi, president of Minneapolis College of Art and Design, and this is On Topic, where I engage with creative cultural leaders on pressing issues facing artists, designers, and the broader community. In this season of On Topic, we're exploring creativity and equity and how it relates to work, leadership, teaching, and beyond. For this episode, I was honored to speak with Sarah Bellamy of Penumbra Theater, one of the nation's oldest and largest African-American theater companies based in St. Paul. Sarah spoke about Penumbra's history and how the organization grapples with the social condition of Black Americans while also serving as a beacon for the community. Recently, Penumbra has transformed into a center for racial healing and developed a racial equity training program. Sarah joined me on the first day of the fall semester for a community conversation in which the campus gathers to hear from someone who can inspire us in our own creative practices and beyond. Sarah Bellamy is a nationally recognized uh, racial equity facilitator and practitioner of racial healing. Her methods are holistic, profound, and powerful, and foster powerful intimacy and authenticity for her clients. She brings a wealth of scholarship, strategic acuity, and deep compassion to consultative and coaching relationships. Her writing focuses on memoir, personal essays, plays, and short stories. She is a stage director and the president of Penumbra, one of the nation's oldest and largest African-American theater companies. Sarah is a graduate of Sarah Lawrence College and holds an MA in Humanities from the University of Chicago. She's taught at McAllister College, the University of Minnesota, and served as a visiting professor of theater and culture at United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Her lectures on the power of race and representation have been presented across the country, illuminating the ways in which images, narratives, and media influences perception and ultimately shapes lives. Sarah has been awarded the Hubert Humphrey Public Leadership Award, a Bush Foundation Fellowship, and serves on the board of directors of the Theater Communications Group. She currently serves on the board of directors for the Jerome Foundation. During our work together on the Jerome Foundation board, I've gotten to know Sarah, and I'm so impressed with her passion to see the world change from a lens of equity and inclusion uh, and her ability to go ahead and speak so poetically about this work uh, in a way that I think touches so many people. So uh, we're really excited to have Sarah. I'll talk to you a little bit about the format. Uh, Sarah will talk uh, for a bit about Penumbra um, and then we'll enter into a conversation with each other about both her anti-racism and anti-oppression work and the writing and scholarship she's been working on. Welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Sanjeet, for the warm welcome. And thanks so much for making space for me to join you today. Um, so I'm Sarah. I use she, her pronouns. I'm coming to you from uh, St. Paul, from my home, um, which is about two blocks away from Penumbra. I'm excited to be with you for a number of reasons. I've always been really fascinated by MCAD. When I was a small child, um, I used to visit the campus with my mother, uh, who attended school there as an artist. And um always felt like it was kind of a magical place and have enjoyed coming back and seeing student shows and, and things like that. Um, and I think it's really important for um, arts organizations at this point to be in conversation about how we hold community. So I want to tell you a little bit about Penumbra. I'm going to assume that you don't know anything about it, then have an opportunity to talk a little bit more deeply about kind of where we are as an organization today. Penumbra is a nationally renowned Black theater company located in St. Paul, and we are actually entering into our 45th year of continuous production, which is no small feat for a Black legacy institution. Many of the organizations that um, were founded around the same time as Penumbra Theater have closed. And Penumbra was founded out of the Black arts movement, which was a time period when 
sort of on the heels of the civil rights movement when artists were um, looking at, there was a lot of goodwill, but change was kind of slow to be cemented. And so artists began creating work that was both inside spaces, outside spaces, really trying to agitate and get people organized. Um, So we come from uh, a social practice that is about activism, that is about building on the legacy of the social justice movements that Black folks in this country have been shepherding for a long time. So that's part of our proud legacy. We create new plays. Um, We stage about five plays a year, and then we have some pretty robust education and equity programs that we run as well, which I'm happy to talk about. So uh, we're located inside the historic Rondo community, which is um, actually a a really fascinating area. If anybody hasn't been over here, it's um, now kind of gotten rebranded a bit as the Selby Dale area, but Folks from the neighborhood, we still refer to it as Rondo because that's the historically Black neighborhood that was here. It's one of the first uh, neighborhoods that actually had an anti-lynching law passed, um, sent a bill forward. There's been a, this is sort of the seat of political activism in the Black community here in St. Paul. And so um, there's a great history here. And the building inside which we're located is a community center. And we've been there um, for the duration of the company's life. We were actually started out of a um, an arts program that was designated for the community center and uh, have remained there. And so even as the neighborhood sort of rapidly gentrifies around us, Penumbra stays, we hope, as sort of a beacon or a lighthouse. Um, and rather than placemaking, we're really focused on placekeeping. Um, and we are working really diligently to be in authentic and deep relationship with Native nations and to uh, respect the sovereignty of Native nations here. So that's kind of the work that that Penumbra is doing around place. The other thing that we do is we use our art to really get people active. And, um, you know, I think in Penumbra's early years, there might have been, that might have been a little clandestine, but at this point in our um, life cycle, it's, it's front and center. You know, we really want to make sure that we're taking the opportunity to um, bring audiences into deeper empathy and deeper awareness about what's going on, about the plight and the success and contributions of Black folks in particular in the United States. The company began with a standing company, which is quite rare at this point. Um, not many organizations can afford to keep a standing company uh, employed. And basically what that means is Regardless of whether or not the artists in the company would be on stage in a play, they would still draw a salary. And it's something that I would love to return to at some point, but it is it is costly. But what that meant in the early years is that the artists that were also on stage, they, they built the sets, they answered the phones, they sold the tickets, um, they cleaned the bathrooms and the dressing rooms and... Um, what that created is a real powerful ensemble aesthetic that continues to guide the company today. Um, Because everybody did everything, they sort of began this um, idea that there are no stars at Penumbra or the playwright is the star. And so this ensemble aesthetic drives the work, but it also really drives how we're in relationship with each other and with our community. One of the most powerful things that I've heard the company members say to one another as they are um, engaging either in rehearsal or, you know, after work or um, on stage 
is what do you need? And I think that's the deepest expression of this ensemble aesthetic. What do you need? How do I help you show up? Um, how do I be with you in community today? Wholeheartedly, I still believe that today as the leader of the organization, that part of what we're doing is world building, whether we're on stages or off doing equity work. And that's what continues to drive me and, and motivate me to this day. So the company was founded by my father, Lou Bellamy, um, and uh, a group of other artists and scholars. Um, some of them were theater practitioners, other were visual artists, writers, dancers. There was a, a whole um, you know, kind of group of people that would come together, create art, grapple with sort of the social condition of Black Americans, and um, really argue with each other around concepts of, of ethics and artistry. And, and that really created this very rigorous aesthetic that um, we're known for today. Sometimes it becomes sort of surrealist and avant-garde. Other times it's very naturalistic and um, we do magical realism. We do brand new plays that are, you know, breaking barriers and trying to think about the different ways that we can engage audiences and so it's, it's been a really exciting, dynamic place to be a part of. So this 45-year-old Black legacy institution that's been built really primarily around theater is now moving into a space of um, serving as a center for racial healing. And what that means is we're going to be continuing to produce powerful, thought-provoking, provocative art um, supporting Black artists, um, supporting other artists of color uh, that work with us. And we're going to continue our really, you know, extensive racial equity training program that we've got um, going. A lot of it is digital, which has been allowing us to expand our footprint even more at this point. And we're adding a whole wellness component into our services as well, because what we understand is that we really do need to detoxify our bodies from the the toxic stress of living in a racially stratified society. So what we envision is a center for racial healing that nurtures Black artists, advances equity, and facilitates wellness for individuals and for communities. The way that we're doing that is through a theory of change that I've developed. I call it the three A's. And basically what it means is that we need to be willing to acknowledge um, historic abuse and, and trauma, which is something that we're notoriously not so great at in the United States but we need to face history bravely so that um, we don't replicate um, some of the things that we've done in the past, that we do need to attend to the vulnerable, that in any society, in any community, in any organization, there will be a, a group of people who by virtue of the intersection of their identities will be the most vulnerable. And, and we need to attend to those folks first. We have to prioritize, you know, when we do this work and everybody needs attention, but it's really important that we kind of acknowledge that there are people who are, are really in some dire need of support. And then finally, we address inequity with meaningful and proportionate action. And of course, I think on the heels of what happened here in Minnesota, everyone was really eager to know what to do. They wanted to be active and, and take up good work. And that's wonderful. It's a wonderful impulse. But I think if we're not willing to sit with um, a frank recognition of our history and then a deep understanding of how we prioritize our work, the actions that we take actually can be harmful. They might be misguided or poorly informed. And so part of what we're trying to do is help people understand, yes, there's, there's a need to triage, but there's also a need to plan for sustainable 
equity practices. And you really do need to take the time to build that plan and, and learn as you go. So that's kind of where we are now. I'm really excited to be exploring into the work. We're um, in a deep uh, strategic planning process right now and um, excited to see where the organization is headed. I'm, I'm feeling pretty hopeful. That's great. Sarah, thanks for that, that overview. You know, I have to say that I, I guess kind of the first, uh, the first question that I have is that it seems like taking a historic legacy institution like Penumbra and then going ahead and making a significant course correction isn't something that's done overnight. And I guess I'm just I'm just curious to know kind of how how that shift was received and you know and and how do you kind of reconcile, you know, people feeling like you're leaving certain things behind or or that shift. And I guess I'm just curious about that in relationship to specifically what went on with Penumbra, but also to think about other institutions that may go through um, similar shifts and changes. Yeah. I um, So I started working on the vision for the Center for Racial Healing in 2015. And um, part of the way that I was raised and taught, um, there were two things that I was taught by some pretty profound thinkers and leaders of social and artist movements. One was Amiri Baraka, who um, told me, you know, our job is to enter into these places of higher education and, and where sort of intellectual capital gets sort of stuck and um, open the doors and the windows and, and bring as much back to our communities as we can. So that was one thing I, I was taught, um, which infuses all of our education programs. And the other was, um, it's really important to sit at the feet of the elders. And so as I was developing this vision, it, I, I spent a lot of time really in conversation with elders, both company members and community leaders around what we were thinking about. Um, not a theater practitioner myself, but I certainly see parallels towards looking at how, how you're working in a field where you're starting to try to really intentionally see how the framework was set up through a Eurocentric point of view. And then you're starting to go ahead and whether it's holistically looking at community care, starting to go through that active process of decolonizing it. And, and I guess I'm, I guess I'm wondering, are there, are there steps you're still trying to achieve regarding Penumbra that are still kind of down the line? And since, you know, as part of that process of kind of, um, of kind of transformation of the organization itself, Absolutely. I mean, we, that's one of the reasons why we're taking such a long time in the strategic plan. 18 months is a long time for a strat plan. Um, but there are a couple things. One, when I came into the artistic directorship uh, in 2012, I was in a co-artistic directorship with my father for four years, um, which is both amazing and also like strange, right? Like you have to figure out how to like not talk about work stuff at home and home stuff at work. And um, <laughs> so that was a fun thing to negotiate, but I, I, I love working with him. But I sort of was like, okay, I'll be an artistic director. I get to curate a season of content for people to engage and like appreciate Black culture. And then I realized like, oh, wow, the inequity in this field is so steep. I'm going to have to be an organizer. I'm going to have to be like a rabble rouser, you know? And so I spent a lot of my time and still do advocating for transformative philanthropy. Um, and I'm excited by the trends that are, are occurring now. We're seeing deeper investment in, in arts organizations of color, but um, 
one of the things that I I had to contend with is not only do the individuals who have um, been denied for so long need healing, like they were always worthy of deep investment, even if they couldn't make the case, but the organization itself needs to heal. Like the systems and structures that were supporting an undercapitalized organization actually need to be advanced. And so what we're doing now is moving into a sense of abundance that we've never had before. Um, we're looking at transformative HR practices. We're looking at radically shifting the ways that we contract with artists to recognize IP and um, you know, try to acknowledge some of the ways in which institutions have actually been not serving individual artists, freelance artists very well. So there's a lot of work to do. It goes deep. It's exciting, but it kind of feels like, wow, you know, if we take everything apart, are we going to be able to put put it back together? And fortunately, we have a lot of really wonderful teams that are working on that right now. In your shift to working in racial healing and equity practices, are there certain things that you think institutions, um, especially well-intentioned institutions, just don't get and that you're seeing kind of patterns of? Are there certain things that you think that they're making significantly dangerous assumptions on um, that you're able to detect? Or is it just kind of all over the place? Well, yeah. I mean, I think in ways it's all over the place. I think, I think there's regional specificity to contend with. I, I think probably the thing that I'm seeing the most that concerns me is the performative nature of doing equity work, like the keeping up with the people next door kind of a thing. And what I find, at least when I consult with organizations, is is I really have to get them into a more patient place, into a place that understands this is going to be deep, it's going to be long. Um, and... And that is like, you know, that is the way that you really change. Um, doesn't mean that we can't take immediate action. That's what I mean when I talk about triage. But uh, we have to unlearn so much. We've been so socially conditioned. Um, and I, I write about this a lot, that to move into a space where, where our bodies are actually metabolizing this new knowledge, we do need somatic processes that are with us. And I think a lot of people stay really cerebral and intellectual when they think about how to do this work. But then when we get into those awkward moments, we never register it in our brains. It's in our guts. Our hands get sweaty, you know, like our breathing gets more rapid. And that's because it's a whole system thing. This is about relationships with people. I think at the end of the day, the best equity work is is about deepening your relationship with yourself and with others. That's truly what it is. And so for those folks that are willing to go on that journey, I think there's just a, it's a, it's endless. Like there's so much reward and richness there, but it, you have to have patience and, and stamina. I, you know, I like the way you boil that down to the kind of very elemental humanistic terms. It's not necessarily about policy. It is about relationships and, and your place in the world. Um, I'm gonna. I'll read Adam's question first because I think that's that relates to it. Inspired by your vision, Sarah, and looking forward to what's ahead for Penumbra. I'm curious to know if you have community partners you're working with on racial healing. Yeah, thank you, Adam, for your question. So, um, part of what we did when we were uh, moving into this new vision is we identified four core areas that Penumbra had already moved into relationships with organizations with to kind of think about how to focus on not just equity but healing. And so those areas are um, climate justice, 
criminal justice reform, education, and health equity. And these are also areas where you see just really, really paltry numbers um, for Black and Native people in terms of inequity here in Minnesota. And, and actually, the Dakotas, Illinois, and Wisconsin were in a bit of a regional hotspot around those things. And so, yeah, we're, we are really intentionally moving into partnership with different entities. Um, we've been working with health partners a lot to think about, um, uh, in particular, better health outcomes for Black women and our babies. Um, so we've been really focusing on on that. Um, I just we're establishing a new relationship that I'm very excited about with people serving people to look at um, positive racial identity development work for Black and Native kids doing some early childhood um, education programs, which I'm so thrilled about. We are still investigating the right relationships in terms of the climate justice work, but we have. Um, one of our company members, say to Ken Jones and his wife, Soini, um, have Frogtown Farms in St. Paul, which is another place that we're kind of, uh, you know, moving into relationship with. So we're just at the cusp of that. And, and it really, I'm glad you asked that question, Adam, because sort of intrinsic in what you're asking is what is the constellation holding the work, right? No one entity can do this alone. And um, I just feel really, really, sometimes overwhelmed emotionally, like to the point of tears when I look around and I see all of the people that are trying to trying to move this state forward. Um, one of the people I'm so impressed with is Dr. Rachel Hardeman-Jones, who's starting the Center for Anti-Racism and Health Equity at the University of Minnesota. Um, really powerful work. I mean, there's just like amazing people everywhere. And I'm like, all right, we can do this. We can do this. I believe in us. But we need these leaders to not like, get tired, right? To, um, to not burn out. And that's part of what we're going to be doing with the leadership Institute at Penumbra is trying to figure out how we can sustain particularly leaders of color. And I would say even more specifically black women and, um, queer BIPOC folks, because, you know, those, these are the people that are really pushing in ways that, um, that they weather a lot. They're really proximate to, the sticking points and um, the systemic sort of defense mechanisms um, and their bodies show it. So that's kind of the work we're trying to do. I know, I think it was back in June or so that um, last June, a year ago, where um, you'd written an essay called <clears throat> Performing Whiteness. Um, it's in the Paris Review. I was really impressed by the heartfelt and personal qualities of it, but at the same time, you, your ability to want to go ahead and think at the 30 or 40,000 foot level um, about what this means um, and uh, and about how to make sense of this and how to come to terms with that. And so a lot of what I've heard you talk about so far, I think kind of fits in within what I saw in this essay. I guess I'm just wondering more about as you're as you're wearing so many different hats is that how passionate are you about about scholarship, about going ahead and writing and trying to make sense of this from that kind of that meta level? Uh, and then maybe from that, we can go ahead and from an educational perspective, what do you think colleges, especially small ones like MCAT can or should do to welcome and protect black member, black community members? Mm -hmm. That's an excellent question. I write it, writing is how I think. It is literally like I can't, that's how I greet the world. It's where I process. It's where I find my ancestors. It's like, that's, that's, it's important. It's hugely important to me. 
And I find that running an organization, trying to change philanthropy, being the mom of two small children, like all of the things, it's like, how do we find time to do those things that are our touchstone sort of clarifying rituals that help us greet the world and greet ourselves. So I try to make space for that. Um, and that's one of the things I work on a lot when I'm coaching leaders is, is trying to create days of integration where we can really begin to pull all of our pieces together. Um, I'm committed to writing. I'm actually working on a book right now. Um, and I love, love, love teaching. Um, I love engaging with students. I love how they push me to think of things differently. I love making syllabi. I do not like the first week before classes because I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, that like month right before classes start where you're like, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can go back and teach, right? Um, definitely have have sympathy for that. But um, yeah, I, I'm deeply committed to it and I'm deeply committed to Penumbra remaining a space where we are inviting provocative thinkers who continue to challenge us and make us uncomfortable and push us. Um, I think it's always been a space of deep scholarship and responsible scholarship. Um, the, the, the history of, of, of black letters and black humanities in this country is, and then going back to like, you know, before the middle passage, it's so profound. Like, so yes, it, it just has to be. Um, what we can do in, in colleges, I think is, I, I feel like our work right now is to just acknowledge that by virtue of the bodies that certain folks are born into, the moment they leave a classroom, they will be more vulnerable. And, and we can't, and even in the classroom, right, as we're engaging material, like, and so I think the more that we're willing to create space to see that we're not all coming to this content from the same place, that we're not all moving around a campus in the same way, that um, depending on how we look, how we present, all of those things, um, some folks are really radically unsafe. Um, and some folks are really um, radically invisibilized. And um, some folks don't have to contend with that at all. And that is a conversation that we have to keep having. Um, and every institution needs to figure out their own organic path um, through that work uh, to create more safety and, and comfort. I think comfort is really a huge piece. It's like, yeah, safety is great. That's like the bare minimum. How do we actually help people feel at home um, and, and not rely on them to do the work right uh, for us? So I don't have neat and tidy answers in like five minutes, but it is something that I'm committed to being in conversation with institutions with, and uh, especially through the, the racial healing work we're trying to do at Penumbra. You know, I, I, part of the thing that I think about when I think about art, equity, and wellness, like this idea that racial healing somehow sits at the confluence of these three rivers. For me, art is this place where we dream new worlds, where we, we, we dream our liberation. We move into things that we didn't know were possible. And the equity work is like, you know, or the, the wellness work is like where we're trying to attend with our bodies and the fact that they need to heal and connecting our, our minds and our hearts and detoxifying. And so you've got these people that are like dreaming big and, and now they're feeling better in their bodies. And now the world needs to be ready for them, right? These, these 
incredible beings. And so that's where the equity piece comes in. And so I really feel like investigating those, the dynamism between those three things can, can lead to some really exciting policies and practices to protect folks. I think that's a, that's a great way to frame it, especially around uh, the notion of, of, of knowing that there are different ways that individuals are occupying these spaces and, and, um, and they're the same spaces. It's not necessarily about the creation of additional spaces, but it's about acknowledgement of the way people occupy that. And in some ways, I think I, I really felt that when you started to talk in that, in that essay that I posted about, about that idea of racial inheritance, you know, and, and the entire construct of racial inheritance is, um, is an embodiment of a specific form of thinking, but also a very specific form of trauma that, that communities of color see. Sarah, if you could just talk a little bit more about racial inheritance and, and what you think it means for institutions to acknowledge that or um, or what do you think it meant for you, um, you know, um, as someone that's witnessing and also translating these things to, to young children and um, into another community? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's a huge question. <laughs> I'll do my best. We'll, I, we'll consider this the first part and we'll invite the you. The first part of it. Uh, racial inheritance. I mean, first of all, uh, I think of racial healing as sort of excavating both traumas and resiliencies that are buried within our bodies based on our racial and cultural experiences. And it's important that you hear me say traumas and resiliencies because we have, we, we carry both. I mean, the, 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 how black culture thrives uh, today is so incredible. It's just, you know, like considering what, what black folks have been through um, here in this country. So it, it is, it's both. And I also really want to, um, I'm very curious about and committed to exploring uh, the trauma that learning to be white actually does to white folks in this country as well. Um, That is a social construct and it is a very highly disciplined policed construct that that people uh, are are disciplined into. And there's some great thinking around it. One of the people that I love is um, a writer named Tandeka. She actually has a book called Learning to Be White. And I think the subtitle is Race, God, and Money in America. But it talks about this sort of spiritual toll that it takes. And and then the, the, the literal toll, I mean, children are told they can't play with certain people or, or young folks are told they can't date certain people or, you know, the, you, you lose things along the way. And um, so I'm really fascinated about that. In fact, I'm, I'm giving a talk to a group um, next month about that, about how, the grieving, I think, that white folks need to do as they come to terms with racial inheritance and, and, and being raced. And I, and I also want to say very clearly, I think that's, that's their own work to do. Um, I think that there can be cultural midwives to support that work, but that they need to be very clearly choosing to step into that space, right? I think too often we're like, oh, you're a person of color on this board. You should do X, Y, or Z thing. And um, some of us really have capacity for that and others don't, right? And and it needs to be a a decision that's made. Um, And then those folks need to get resourced, you know, not only like paid, but but supported in that midwifery that that happens as people start to move out of... um, out of a space where they're sort of unconsciously practicing whiteness into a space where they're consciously engaging with, with the construct. Um, 
yeah, racial inheritance is profound. I mean, I'm of the mind that it's one of the most, if not the defining quality or characteristic of, of Americans. It's up there, you know. Um, it's baked into our, our founding documents and, and we never really resolve the intolerable contradictions that are, that are there, you know, that, um, people were imagining a free country that was on stolen land and powered by slave labor. That's just never been acknowledged truly deeply. Um, so, yeah. And, and the other thing I'm really interested in is how, when we're not conscious of these things, our bodies actually start to kind of lurch into behaviors that um, may be ancestral and we're actually performing race in ways that we're not thinking of, like we're not actually, you know, it's more reactive. Um, and that that's a really dangerous place to be. Um, so that's what I was writing about in performing whiteness. And um, I'm exploring that a little bit more in, in um, an extended chapter of the book. But yeah, I, I, I just feel like... Um, this is, it's the, the work of a lifetime. And for someone like me, who's um, a light skinned black identified woman um, who grew up code switching a lot uh, and figuring out how to like be kind of a chameleon in different spaces, the, the privilege of a lifetime was being exactly who I am in every one of those spaces. And I think if we do that um, for people, that's, that's what equity work ought to strive toward is that we want people to show up authentically themselves and feel safe in doing so. That's great. It's great to go ahead and go into such depth with you about, uh, about things that you're passionate about. I have a feeling that uh, when we were asking questions, when you heard a question about, um, about who you're partnering with, and I think we're also thinking that we've got to do more together between Penumbra and MCAD. So um, I think that's a, that's a given, but uh, really, I couldn't think of a better way for us to start uh, our first day of the new school year back in person than having this conversation with you and and just look forward to future conversations and collaborations to come. Thank you. Thank you so much for welcoming me. It's been so nice to be with you today. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Topic. To find out more about all of my guests this season and from season one, head to mcad.edu slash on topic, where you can find profiles and links to all of our guests. If you haven't already, don't forget to like, rate, subscribe, and follow wherever you're listening. And you can always find more content at mcad.edu slash on topic. This podcast was produced with Taylor Lewin and underscore audio.co.